When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and today, today we are in the presence of greatness. Stick around for an awesome conversation that I had recently with mandolin bluegrass legend Sam Bush. The one, the only, the GOAT is with us today on ITMB, dropping knowledge, dropping stories, and doing it all in that legendary Sam Bush style. So we got that coming up here in just a few minutes. Quick word about my sponsor this season. Big shout out to Deering Banjos, incredible maker of banjos that range from super high end, super ornate, beautiful tone to the best affordable banjo out there. That's the Good Time series. If you're looking to check banjo out or if it's not your first instrument, the Good Time is your go-to. And they've got this great new series of videos on their YouTube channel, on their Instagram. Deering Live features incredible banjo players from across the spectrum. So you got claw hammer, you got three finger players, and these are interviews, also some playing, so you can learn a ton from those. And you can also learn a ton from Deering's website, a phenomenal resource for really anyone who's learning banjo. So for all your banjo needs, make sure you check out Deering. Inside the Musician's Brand is also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris is the voice of the Roots music world in podcast form. Many, many great shows under the Osiris umbrella, including if you're into fish, they've got, I got two for you here, Undermine and the HF Pod, both cover all the bases, great hosts, great discussions there, really enjoyable. And also another pod that you should check out, Inappropriate Happiness, hosted by Bass Badass, and she's also been on the pod here, Karina Reichman, and Isaac Sloan is the other host there, and that one is just a fun listen. So check them out. Check out Osiris in general. So many great music podcasts there. You should also check out Americana Vibes. That is the infamous String Dusters record label, and we are working hard to curate and bring together all kinds of great up-and-coming bands, more established bands, and just to put great music out there into the world to bring this community together and bring more attention to all the great Roots music that's being created these days. It's really it's really pretty endless. Quick conservation shout-out. I'm doing these. I know this is a music podcast, and this may seem a little bit random to some of you, but this is something that's very near and dear to my heart, something that I feel like is more important now than ever. 
the issue of conservation, taking care of the natural world. And I know it resonates with this audience, so I want to give a shout out this week to the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. This is an awesome nonprofit. Of course, focused more on saltwater species, more on saltwater habitat, and focused very much on water quality as well. And the cool thing about BTT is they really bring the science to the fight. They've invested a lot in research, and that's a big part of moving the needle. They've accomplished some amazing things. They are very worthy of your support. Check them out, the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. All right, legend alert here on Inside the Musician's Brain. And, you know, if you could go back in time and tell 18-year-old me that I would not just meet Sam Bush, but actually become friends over the years, make a bunch of music together, well, I don't think I'd believe you. I don't think I don't think 18-year-old me would be able to keep it together with that intel. That's that's how big Sam is. And I thought I would try and sort of put all this in context for you. In in my case, when I was falling in love with banjo, it was the fleck tones all day, every day. That was what I was into. And of course, Sam Bush was playing with the fleck tones often back in the day. He was on their album Live Art. He was really a, a part of that sound, that era when they had a bunch of different musicians who were essentially taking the place of Howard Levy, founding member, who was now back. And from the Flectones, I migrated over to Bela's solo albums. So I'm talking about Drive, the Bluegrass Sessions, and of course Sam was a huge part of these records as well. And can't leave out the seminal album, the Telluride Sessions, featuring basically all those same amazing pickers. We'll get into talking about that in a minute. Put all these records on your required listening list, by the way. So I'm talking about all of Bela's solo stuff, Drive, Bluegrass Sessions, Tales from the Acoustic Planet Volume 1, a favorite of mine, Telluride Session, any of their solo records usually features some collection of these players. And they were changing the game at that time. And the point of all this is that what I was going through was what many young players were going through, discovering this innovative, amazing new iteration of bluegrass, string band music, whatever you want to call it. And at the center of it all was Sam's ultra-distinctive mandolin playing, his thick driving rhythm, his fiery creativity. I mean, you just knew it was him from the first notes. And his sound was such a big part of what shaped our concept, my generation, again, a of how the music could sound, of how it was supposed to sound, and how powerful it could be. And of course, this crew, Bela Fleck, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Edgar Meyer, Mark Schatz, Stuart Duncan, Mark O'Connor, Tony Rice, later Brian Sutton, these guys became our musical gold standard. And it was just inspiration in action. And pretty much all the string players that I was around you know, relatively close in age, we all gravitated toward these legends in the making. And one of the real defining aspects of this generation of players was how they employed all of the bedrock, essential technical aspects of bluegrass that make it so cool, so powerful. So I'm talking about the rock solid timing, the really evocative tones of the instruments and really precise, but also artful, really soulful articulation that those early bluegrassers pioneered. They had all of that, but they expanded the vocabulary, the lexicon of 
instrumental ideas and of course the composition possibilities they expanded all of that immeasurably just bringing all these new influences into the music so everything from jazz classical you know different ethnic music from around the world they really just blew the whole thing wide open and in the process inspired legions of young players and at the center of it all the rhythmic backbone was Sam Bush he was the guy and that's really saying a lot because one of the fundamental aspects of their music was that it was string band music there was no drummer and to make up for that lack of power because the drums the traditional kind of electric rhythm section that's really what makes almost all popular music powerful rhythmically powerful and to make up for that the mandolin had to really bring it really fill a lot of space really have a lot of rhythmic information and a lot of mojo going and sam he answered that call and really set a new standard in that area he kind of redefined what we thought was possible on the mandolin now of course the modern day sam bush band has had a drummer for years now and this doesn't take anything away from what sam is doing it's just a different sound and a quick shout out to my man wes corbett Sam's excellent new banjo player who replaced Scott Vestal, sounding awesome. But in that seminal era and in all that music that I keep referencing from Drive to the Bluegrass Sessions and everything in between, and even going back to, of course, the Newgrass Revival, Sam Bush was kind of what held it all together. He was the rhythm, and that is no exaggeration. We've been crossing paths with Sam for years now, so many sit-ins with the Dusters. He's even done some more formal kind of like special guest appearances. But the time when I really got, you know, my most intimate playing experience to that point with Sam was over two different installments of the Bluegrass Generals. That's a side project that Andy Hall and I do here in Denver where we bring together lots of different musicians and sam was part of the first installment of that i wonder if any of you were at the one up to see larry keel sam bush and sam grisman joining me and andy for what was two very memorable nights of music and for the second installment we were at cervantes and i'll never forget this so it's like 1 p.m on a friday afternoon in this dark dank green room and you know we're getting ready for night one of two nights, four individual sets, no repeats, like a lot of music to learn. And here we are playing a song that Sam's played a million times, and he is giving it 110% full on, like headbanging in the green room, committed. That just always, that really made an impression on me in the moment and really always stuck with me, always resonated as a reminder that the best players never take the music for granted. They practice like they play and they really mean what they say. And I think that's such a great thing to emulate. Another thing that I love from this conversation was Sam's answer to my question about how he gets in the zone for shows, how to be a better performer. And of course I ask a lot of guests that question. I think it's always really interesting. And Sam's answer was so simple, really beautiful. And perhaps something that can seem cliche, even maybe a little trite in sort of this mindfulness information age, but his answer was simply to practice gratitude. And it's just such a simple little trick that can get you out of your own way. Take the attention off your inner monologue. 
chill out that judgmental energy and kind of help get you centered on what's really happening, which is always just the present moment. Truly, all there is, but we can't be reminded of it enough. And if that's good enough for Sam, well, that's a great reminder of how timeless the practice really is. And it reminds me of an awesome Michael J. Fox quote. I don't know where I saw this, but I just jotted it down on my sort of running list of ideas that that I want to share here on Inside the Musician's Brain. And that is, quote, with gratitude, optimism is sustainable, end quote. And I think that's such a good one. And the world sure needs more optimism. Okay, enough for me. Let's jump ahead now to hear from one of the greatest acoustic musicians of all time. This is Sam Bush. Here we go. I can't ever seem to get nowhere When I play it out Close my eyes and I am halfway there All I carry Is this remedy to see you again so I'm sending out this signal that I'm traveling to you as fast as I can To the crowded station gate A month of Sundays just to make it are here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and my guest today is legend status, and I do not use that term lightly. One of our biggest inspirations, one of our musical heroes, Sam Bush. Welcome to the podcast, man. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, Panda. <laughs> good good to see you today. How are you doing, man? It's I good ass- to be seen. I assume you're coming good, to us right. from Nashville, Tennessee right now? We are yes, uh, it's uh, it's a lovely day outside. Of which I, you know, need to get out and spread some seed here in the old yard here after a while. But it's a great it's a great day, and just uh, honestly, uh, just getting over Merle Fest. I we go there uh, every spring, and it's a privilege. Uh, I've I've you know more more than ever. I appreciate it this year, being that it was the thirty fifth one, and I've uh, gotten to go to all of them. And this oh, one wow. also was to in, uh, in commemorative of Doc Watson's uh, 100th uh, anniversary, or 100th you know anniversary of his birth year. So it was you know, I, and I used to get to play with Doc and Merle some, and so it, you know it was really special in in a way. I kept uh, thinking more fondly than ever of good old good old Doc Watson. You know how much we all owe him. How cool! What was it like playing music with him? Well, it was a lesson. It was it was there was always a lesson to be learned if you just paid attention. Um, he led by example. He never said anything, you know, in, his, in a way. I mean, just ve- said very few things. But I do know, for instance, my, the first session I got to be on with him, I, I'm trying to think, it was uh, in 74. So what would I have been? Still, gosh, 22 years old, uh, getting to record with Doc. And uh, the first song we recorded it, and I went in, you know, we go into the you know, control room for listening to the playback, and I must have really been trying hard to impress him and throw in everything I knew uh, <laughs> in the first song uh, because he just, we listened to it, and Doc uh, just said, uh, 
Son, you know, we're going to play some more songs today. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Hold something back. Save something for the rest of them. Yeah, you don't have to play everything you know in the first song. It might might work out better (laughs) for the music, for sure. But it was... uh, it was always, uh, he, he didn't have any limits on music. And so I, I totally loved that about him. He loved any kind of music. Uh, there was no you know, boundaries in music to him. And he didn't really yeah. understand boundaries in music. It didn't, didn't really make much sense to him. It all sounded like music to him. Yeah, that's cool. Little known fact, I have my side project, which is, it's called Trad Plus. And it's this wide ranging you know, beats and electronic stuff and banjo and Stuart Duncan played fiddle on the last record and, and, and me and a drummer and, and the name trad plus comes from doc Watson. Cause I remember looking in the Merle fest program one year and doc said back in the day that he referred to his own music as traditional plus traditional music plus, plus whatever else I like. And I just thought, yeah. man, that's, that's hip. <laughs> I mean, man, I was, uh, you know, it was, uh, Oh, probably 10, 10 years, probably maybe before Doc died. But I was, uh, I went over to, to play. Sometimes I'd be hired to come, you know, play sometimes. And I met up with uh, he and Jack Lawrence and I guess Richard Watson over in Memphis. And uh, I'm sitting there playing with them. And, you know, Doc always surprised me. And that night he sang Nights in White Satin. And oh, wow. it was beautiful. It was beautiful. How cool. And, I was bowled over. He said, "Yeah, brother Jack taught me this one." <laughs> that's really and, cool. Uh, you know, it's just a good song. Is it a good song or not? I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things I want to chat with you about today, Sam. Th- first of all, thank you so much for joining me, man. This is a real honor. And as I said in the intro, you know, you you're one of the guys who really set us on the path that we're on. Not only the string dusters, but all of the pickers in my generation and you know we, we owe you a big debt of gratitude for all the amazing recorded music everything on stage over the years it just really has been such a huge inspiration man so first of all thank you but i also my pleasure I, yeah i also wanted to just kind of glad to be in there somewhere you know? yeah, oh well you're <laughs> you're at the you're at the front of the whole thing and we're going to talk about some some moments along that path but i kind of wanted to start by just getting your impression of where acoustic music and newgrass is today because i mean the music is just thriving like never before you could even argue i would say that bluegrass is more popular right now than it's ever been reaching more new fans in the hands of more new players all all that influence that started you know back in the 40s and then with you guys has really trickled down and it's amazing to see and i just kind of wanted to get your impressions of how the scene has grown and evolved to where it is today well it it uh boy i mean i i think it's a pretty and i tend to think more of it in in the where's the music at not so much the you know the uh the, the 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 ticket sold or the show business part of it but that's all you know part of the popularity but i mean a the popularity is is uh obviously at at a height or people like us couldn't all go around making a living right and uh, right. so there's room for all for all there's there's venues for all of us of different types and um, and then when you think of you know you know and the first thing that comes to mind of course for all of us is 
how good Billy's doing, Billy Strings, how good Billy's doing, and and uh, and that's that's just gonna that's I tend you know I've always tended to think that's just gonna help all of us, but I you know because I've been around long enough, <laughs> yes I have uh, to see. Um, I mean I remember uh, I was a kid uh, just maybe not now not remember exactly how, but a teen early teenager when. Foggy Mountain Breakdown came on the radio, and it came on the rock and roll channel in my hometown in Bowling Green. So, you know, every once in a while, Whoa. something would come along. Something would come along that gave, that gave bluegrass a goose. And tradition, And I swear it was almost as if three major times that it happened, it revolved around being in a film. First was Bonnie and Clyde. And that kind of coincided also with Beverly Hillbillies being on TV. And for instance, a young person like a young little Bela Fleck, you know, hears that on TV at his granddad's house and goes, whoa. So then the next one that I, you know, really gave a bluegrass, a big shot in the arm, totally was on the radio was Eric Weisberg and Steve Mandel with Doolin Banjos when did when Deliverance, Deliverance was a hit movie yeah. in, the, in the early 70s. And then... The most recent one that was gave bluegrass style music a great shot in the arm was, of course, uh, "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou." So I mean, yeah. you know, the film, the world of film has really helped out uh, certain things get on a radio that you know otherwise might not have been. So that's been uh, uh, so that that that's its own kind of goose it's had. And uh, so, but right now, like if, if uh, you know, the way Billy's selling tickets, you know, Molly Tull's doing great. I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, Sierra's out there playing great. I mean, there, there there's, uh, musically speaking, it's, I think it's a great time, but that's, it's been this way for a while because you still, I mean, you still have Dale McCurry. And I just got to, uh, you know, sing with Dale and, and Peter Rowan the other day at, at Merle Fest, you know, and I got to thinking about how lucky. You know, though they are still first generation. Hey, if you played with Bill Monroe, you're still first generation bluegrass boy. I mean, you know what? When they really, what really kicked both those guys into bluegrass was playing with Bill Monroe, and yeah. uh, so we still we still have Dale McCurry, who in in his mind is not limited within the way he plays bluegrass. It just sounds that way. It's just the way he is. I mean, it's just natural, and. Um, but he's always been bringing in new material and stuff. So it's uh, a young audience is part of where a large part of this equation is, is being able for a young audience to hang and, and enjoy this kind of music more than ever. So that's that's pretty great that, that yeah. uh, if a young audience is picking up on the musicianship of bluegrass style players. Well, it's an interesting point you make about Dell, and you kind of – said the same thing about Doc a moment ago. And all these guys, Monroe, Doc Watson, Del McCurry, even though people think of them as more traditional players, it seems like they're kind of the most open-minded guys all along. And it's like this lost sort of element, this lost piece of the puzzle that traditional people get hung up on. And now I feel like we're just seeing the fruits of how open-minded these musicians are and it's like the floodgates are open all this new music all these new styles are coming into bluegrass well i mean yeah and when we when you think of uh i mean my i i, I guess as my dad maybe the first time i would have ever ha heard this kind of thought 
was, you know, he was a big fan of the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, so he said when Bill Munro came on the Grand Ole Opry and played Orange Blossom Special the first time, and this is pretty much pre-Earl Scruggs being in the band, that just him, Bill Munro coming on and playing Orange Blossom Special just absolutely tore the place apart. And, and then, you know, later when he got Earl Scruggs with his fancy banjo, uh, who called it that, Dave Macon, maybe Earl and his fancy banjo. Uh, anyhow, it, uh, you know, that, my dad said that, everybody else played uh, old timey like the the, uh, the fruit jar drinkers and the possum hunters. And so, you know, they'd be, it'd, be, it'd be fiddle tunes and stuff, but with claw hammer banjo and, and certainly with the way, uh, not not jug bands, but, you know, what we now would t- term old-time fiddle music bands. Sure. Uh, but at any rate, when ben Bill Monroe came along, it, it was this new, I mean, that, that's, that, that might have been your first hillbilly jazz right there. <laughs> I love it. Well, and definitely, you know, ahead of his time, these guys, Monroe, Scruggs, just like innovators on another level and creating something out of nothing. And it's so cool. And then years later, Newgrass Revival comes along and Newgrass started up in 1971. And I often think of you guys as sort of way ahead of your time because it just, I mean, wouldn't you agree there really wasn't anything like that? And and how did that feel when you guys were coming up with this style of music that you know, was, was something pretty new. Um, honestly, well, I mean, we, we had our influences and in some ways we were, uh, following a trend that was going along in, uh, in bluegrass music at that time. I mean, before we got together, for instance, uh, you know, I mean, like, uh, just a couple of years before that Emerson and Waldron made these great records where they came, they did, when I heard Emerson and Waldron doing Fire Carpenter, that just, oh man, I just thought that was one of the best things I ever heard. Mm-hmm. And so there was, and, but, but, and that you know, goes back to the country gentleman. Some of, I mean, even though I'm a, a large Bob Dylan fan, I was a larger bluegrass fan as a kid. So some of my favorite, you know, some of my first exposure to Bob Dylan songs were by the country gentleman. So we were kind of, but we kind of went further into like, following rock and roll kind of people and stuff it was i mean we had we had uh, we had two tapes or we had these two records on a cassette we would drive around and listen to when we first had our band and uh, on one side of the cassette was john hartford aeroplane and uh of course that record and on the other side was leon russell and the shelter people and those two records like influenced us just to what we loved to hear, what we loved about rock and roll, what we loved about bluegrass, what we loved about country, everything. And um, lo and behold, within a few years, we were like, you know, playing alongside of them, both of them. Yeah. And it was crazy. It was like crazy how it happened. But um, so we, but I mean, we were, we the new grass revival we were influenced by people that already deviated so that that mold was already set to me i mean you know you had the osborne brothers doing wonderful far out things jim and jesse you know i mean barry picking time in the country alone they they did a whole album of chuck berry songs um 
the Dillards, you know, when they introducing orchestration and, and drums and steel guitars on some of their songs. It was wonderful. Yeah. And so and the Charles River Valley Boys did that great album called Beatle Country. It was really influential to us youngsters that loved the Beatles and Bluegrass. It was the perfect uh, record, almost, with Joe Val. <laughs> and uh, so, but, um, so... And it's no coincidence, on our very first record, a Newgrass Revival, our version of Great Balls of Fire is totally influenced by me watching TV. And Courtney saw the same uh, show, watching the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour, when they had a picking segment each week. And the first couple of years, it was Glenn Campbell and John Hartford sitting there picking. And a bass player... Maybe another rhythm player, but I mean, it was just really a great segment, right? There, Glenn and Glenn could really play, right? Yeah, so, oh boy, yeah. Boy, John and Glenn doing this picking segment on that work TV, it was wonderful. So one, uh, and I, I had a, I had a little jack on the back of my tape recorder, and I used to tape this stuff, and I don't know where my tape went, but I had a tape of John and uh, Glenn Campbell doing a do singing a duet of Great Balls of Fire, bluegrass beat. And and the very lit Courtney played on our version came from John on that tape, so we you know, cool. learned it straight from from Hartford. And their old Hartford was influencing us right there. Well, I think I think one of the ways that you guys are perceived as sort of being ahead of your time, because obviously all these influences are in play, and you can hear them. And you guys did do something very new and continue to push the envelope, but. In terms of the way you presented the music, you know, everything from the way that the band looked to the types of shows that you were trying to play, like that was something pretty new though, right? I mean, there weren't, you guys probably didn't have a lot to look up to in terms of like bands that were on a certain track playing certain type of venues. It was sort of the wild, wild west and you guys were kind of making it up out of thin air on that front, right? Well, I mean, you, you were, we right off the bat we weren't really accept we we weren't accepted by the Bill Monroe camp. Can't say I didn't know what I was doing. And I can't pretend the thing just got out of hand. I should have kept my distance for hours to strong, but I got caught up in the feeling I was carrying on. did hire us uh, breakfast special which was you know Tony Trishka and Andy Stapp mm-hmm. and uh, Kenny Kosek uh, and the New Deal string band so us three hippie kind of bands Carlton would hire us but we really did kind of need to make our own audience and college yeah. audiences were were really a good part of our audience as was John Hartford's 
uh, in the early 70s. And that, it was really, uh, so I started playing music for a living August of 1970. And so, in the, in, and it was up, in, in, and we played a lot of colleges because there was a good acoustic music scene kind of happening, thanks to the popularity of, say, James Taylor and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Hartford was part of that. Glenn Campbell was even part of that. And, uh, and that was all good until 1976, disco hit. And it, ah. <laughs> it, it, killed, it killed the folk. There was always like a little coffee house within the college where about a 200 seater that's kind of where we would play a lot and we opened for quite a few shows for john hartford in those in that situation and those jobs just went away because the college really? okay. found out they could once disco hit they could pack the dance floor and uh you know just play a record boom they you didn't have to hire a band crazy they still hired yeah. the rock they still hired the rock shows and stuff but um but yeah, it, it kind of killed folk. It kind of killed folk music in the old colleges. So, what was the legacy of that? Like, was that a thing that lasted for a few years, and then you noticed that acoustic music kind of came back around, or was that something that really kind of put a damper on things for an extended period of time? Well, I mean that that was just one one you know, part of where you could work. But there wasn't really a market, uh, be it either country or rock and roll, once once that kind of happened. Because even, uh, yeah, there weren't, there weren't new groups getting signed that were playing acoustic guitars anymore yeah. on, on, in rock and roll, you know, much. Uh, and so that's, you know, as we, you know, continue to try to make records. I mean, we always love to try to play country rock. We tried to play rock and roll. We tried every. We tried everything, and um, just you know, with our instruments. And as far as what you were talking, what we were alluding to earlier, we we really were just uh, influenced. We were influenced by. We too were influenced by the the Burrito Brothers. You know, and we did one of their songs, Four Days of Rain." As you know. But it took a singer like John to be able to sing it. So some things it was almost like we had to wait to work up till John could join to get a singer mm. that good to, to sing like that, to be, to have those vocals. And uh, so, it. but we really, I mean, I, you know, there's, but I think every band goes through this, no matter who you're influenced by. It, one, it's the way those... It's, it's the way you happen to play, and it's the way, though, in our case, those four, us four, could play together. And, uh, you know, we really did grow up, Courtney and me especially, really kind of grew up together playing. I, he was just older than me, but, you know, when he first started playing banjo, I mean, he was totally Ralph Stanley. I mean, he didn't play a lick of what I call Scrug style. He played like hmm. Ralph Stanley style. Mm-hmm. Maybe with a little Reno thrown in, and he was the lead singer in the band. <laughs> Courtney was so, uh, and then he came back from a folk festival telling me, and this so this is somewhere around nineteen sixty eight or nine, or maybe even a little before. Uh, the, anyway, he went to folk festival in Arkansas, and he said, and "I just heard the best banjo picker you're ever going to hear," and he's a boy from Oklahoma, named Alan Mundy. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> he was right. <laughs> That's cool. Well, you guys, you know, regardless of what happened during that time, it's amazing to 
behold the influence, like I said, that's now really trickled down all the way to us and now bands, like you mentioned, Billy Strings. And there's a million bands out there these days. And, you know, these events like Winter Wondergrass that weren't around when we got our start. And it's like, wow, all these amazing pickers are coming out of the woodwork. And a lot of that really started with you. And it's a good segue because you mentioned John Hartford and you have this awesome new record that came out last year, Radio John, Songs of John Hartford. And I want to talk about that a little bit. But in keeping with this conversation about, you know, Newgrass and the influence, I've heard, I read and heard you talking in an interview about how there's no Newgrass without John Hartford. And he obviously was a huge influence on you. How would you describe the things in his music, the spirit, the picking, the songs, whatever? What, what were the things that really influenced you and then, again, sort of sept into that, you know, like that area that ultimately became bluegrass? Well, I've, I've said it in some of these interviews and talking about John, but what uh, what attracted me, first thing that ever happened, I saw him on TV. We live close enough to Nashville TV. I was watching uh, one of the Saturday afternoon programs, I think the Wilburn Brothers show, and there was a guy, good-looking guy, uh, singing lead while playing Scruggs-style banjo, and I never saw anybody do that. I didn't know anybody could actually do that at the same time and hmm. actually keep this role going. And so, but I didn't catch his name. So then a few weeks later, my dad and I were in Nashville at the Ernest Tubb record shop, and I was leafing through records, and there's that guy. That's him. His name's John Hartford. So I bought that record, that it, and it happened to have Gentle on my mind on it. And this was before Glenn Campbell came out with that song. Right. So I, and so, but... Immediately, you know, I'm like, I mean, I was a kid that was drawn to everything. So uh, this, these kind of records that John made for RCA uh, would have, you know, a, a trap drummer, an electric bass, probably piano. So country style uh, instruments that were, you know, the rhythm section of the day in Nashville. Uh, later come to know Norbert Putman played most of the bass on all those records. And... Um, but anyhow, I, but these interesting songs, while mixed in with a guy that obviously knew Scruggs banjo, but yep. but the progressive but progressive style banjo too, sure, and, and melodic style at the at a time when not a lot of people played that way. So yeah. at any rate, I I got so each time we go back to Nashville, I buy another John Hartford record, and so now I was building it up, and then all of a sudden, boom, he's on TV. Now he's on Glenn Campbell show. When I had, I've had been seeing him locally around Nashville on TV. So then, yeah, and now he's there, and then that even leads to uh, then he be uh, once what he was, he played at like the basketball arena at the college when when I was a junior or senior no in high way. school. I know because I had to hightail it over there in my buddy in my muddy halftime band uniform from marching at the football uh, game. Totally fell down, muddied up to the knee, but I made the show. <laughs> so you were in the marching band back in the day? Oh, yeah. What was your oh, gig yeah. there? Drums. Drums. <laughs> well, drama. <laughs> I graduated to snare. I started as the bass drummer. and uh, But I was, as a bass drummer, in the words of Bill Monroe, I was a bit too stout. I was louder than the whole band. It was a 42-piece <laughs> little band there. <laughs> I could I'm not only surprised. Really get in time. I I'm not surprised. Time that, if I could really hit it. Not surprised that you started out as a drummer because I, I, we all we all hear that in your playing. I did have well. I did learn. You know, there's certain you know basic rudiments. 
Yeah. You know, so the ones go, well, I try to do that with hand. But, you know, no, I was a very, very mediocre, but it was enough to let me march with the band and enjoy. It was great fun. Marching band was great discipline. I loved it. I bet. Well, that's a really cool point you make about Hartford and the whole new grass thing because I feel like the songs is such a big part of it. Like, for example, if you had people playing Scruggs style banjo and mandolin on the offbeat and you played, you know, an Elton John song or a Metallica song, it would sound like bluegrass. You know, it's the it's the playing styles. I always think it's the playing styles and the singing styles that really bring it into that realm. And then when you open up the song craft, you know, which is what guys like John Hartford did, then the music really starts to grow and twist and go in these new directions, which is really cool. Well, yeah, and, and, and in terms of, like, thinking about uh, where he was heading on this RCA Records, the one before Aerial Plane called Iron Mountain Depot, he was stretching out with his four-piece band that still had a rock and roll-style bass and drums. But uh, he was stretching out already on that, and then when he got to Aerial Plane, these these it was like a new style of songs written to play on bluegrass style instruments that like these mm. the way you know the way john plays rhythm on like for instance back in the good old days it's not really it's the way he kind of strummed there was a certain way he strummed it's halfway between a, a guitar strum and a frail or so i don't know what it was but the way he could do that in certain areas and uh and just yeah, the, that you hit it on the head. It's it's the songs that that made new, new, these new kind of songs to play and open up our eyes. That and and, and even that it would, it would always be great. Like when I get a James Taylor record, and uh, and there's a song riding on a railroad. Well, John played on that, and that's uh, the way John could fit in his slow, wonderfully slow banjo roll with the halftime rock and roll rhythm of James Taylor. Mm -hmm. you know, it was really, really, really neat the way. So Hartford was fitting in on that stuff a little bit. Before you know it, he was fitting that too. Yeah, his music is so cool. We we do a few of those. We do, back in the good old days, we do Morning Bugle, which is on the record. Really cool cut. So really, really cool instrumentals on that record too. Um, there's two of them, uh, Down and uh, John McLaughlin, which is which is really cool. Cool choices and just just weird. I mean, like the spirit of his music, yes. it just comes through. It's so it's so free. It's so kind of playful or, you know, it's just inspiring to hear. I love it. Well, and yeah, and when he I mean, we 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 used to in riding around, we would list one of the records we listened to quite uh, we often was uh, Birds of Fire by the Mahavishnu Orchestra. So back then there'd be a lot of themes of uh-huh anyway one day uh, Hartford says yeah yeah I wrote I wrote one of the, one of those tunes like John McLaughlin does that's great what do you call it he's John McLaughlin, John McLaughlin. <laughs> I love it okay that's, that's so, really yeah. cool we'll get right back to my interview with Sam Bush after this very short break Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. 
Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. But yeah, he and he was open, and, and it's it's kind of wild how uh, sometimes I, I find myself too uh, appreciating more of the old time stuff I grew up with more than I might have thirty years ago or something. So that uh, John, as he aged, he got really more enamored with the old time fiddle stuff that would have been some of the first stuff he ever learned, and he really, yeah, really towards that. At the end, at the last five so years of his life was really, you know, or more than that, just immersed in fiddle tunes and writing them down and playing all the different ones and everything. He's, yeah. But he just, he just went, you know, went from his main focus, really banjo, and, and he was always a fiddler, but he really went way into it. I remember seeing him toward the very end of his life, and I didn't get into bluegrass until a lot later than a lot of my peers, and I started going to Gray Fox, and I remember seeing him at Gray Fox, and I knew who he was, but I didn't quite have the grasp of the importance of John Hartford, the gravity of his music, but of course I knew who he was. We went down to see him play, and I remember he was playing fiddle and gently humming along every line that he was playing on the fiddle you could hear him kind of humming into the mic as he was playing you know and there was this this just synchronicity between his musical soul and what was coming out of his instrument and it was just it was very simple but it was very beautiful and you know he wasn't playing quite at like full strength like he was for so much of his career because he has some really challenging and fast and crazy music but it was just very beautiful and really poetic and we were so lucky to get a chance to see him live yeah yeah see uh well part part of that sometimes he would he'd be humming along he'd be hunting for the oddball harmony hunting along to a double stop and it it definitely got uh, was influenced by vassar who was the ultimate king vassar was could like he could hum you an oddest third part to anything he could play, and it was a, cool. an amazing feat to hear Vassar do. So John was always fascinated by what Vassar could do in that way. Well, his influence obviously passed down to you, and then you guys have had such a big influence on our generation of pickers. And one of the records that is so incredibly influential is Strength in Numbers. And after... NGR wrapped up pretty much right around the time that NGR was was wrapping up. You guys did Strength in Numbers. And it has gone on to become one of the most seminal records for all the musicians of my generation. When you guys were making that record, tell me a little bit about the process because it wasn't a band. I mean, it was this collection of unbelievable musicians, but how did that come to be? How did the songs come to be? And then, you know... How did it ultimately go down in terms of recording the, the album? Yeah, uh, well, the the way it got together 
and and is is that this little fellow with his base named Edgar moved to Nashville, and uh, so we all. St- uh, the other four of us had kind of moved here, of course, to be either country or bluegrass, the nature of the thing. Edgar, we're not sure why he moved here, but, <laughs> but anyway, but anyhow, we uh, the first they used to have a thing called this Nashville Summer Lights Festival, and Edgar Meyer assembled us the first time to uh, play some tunes he wrote to be, and we were called Edgar Meyer and Friends. So uh, we were first Edgar Meyer and Friends. And then he uh, seemed like on his, when they had uh, for a while the MCA Master Series, that was a division of MCA and it got to be the, the artistic instrumental kind of section of where you know people were making instrumental records. Jerry did, you know, and Edgar did for MCA Master Series. Okay. And, uh, and so that's what Strength in Numbers ended up on. That was the correct home for us on MCA Master Series. So... But uh, anyhow, but Edgar put us together first, and then when he recorded his first record for them, he put the five of us together. It was really Edgar's thought that we do have a guitar, and and its name is Jerry, right? So, you know, we do have a guitar. Plus, we had two excellent guitar. Bale is a very fine guitar player, and Mark O'Connor, of course, is a masterful guitarist. And so we had, you know, when we wanted a guitar, we had two guitars. But anyway, we, we started playing some jobs like that. Then we played a couple times at Telluride, and we started calling us the Telluride All-Stars. Well, we're not the only people on that festival. Some other people might go, hey, wait a minute. Why are they the All-Stars? And why, wait, a, wait, a, wait, wait a minute. So anyhow, we, we wanted to call the band uh, Telluride, and we found out that there was a band that also was not from Colorado that already had copyrighted the name. <laughs> but we could buy it for a nominal fee. And we said, well, we were thinking of calling the album Strength in Numbers. So that just became, that seemed like a, uh, the, the right title for the band. But, the, but what all happened, but when we got it going, we realized that it would be really easy for us to just throw a jam session and just have fun playing. Mm-hmm. Well, what did we want? What were we trying to accomplish in doing in doing this together? And the way I recall, it was Bela and Mark that that realized that if each person co-writes a song with the other four people, as a five-piece band, we have ten co- totally co-written tunes. Very cool. So that's what we did, and, and oh, and the other ones could not turn down. The 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 ones that you know you two may have come up with that day that you go hey everybody and nope you had to play it and so that's how me and Edgar got Pink Flamingos played <laughs> <laughs> they they couldn't turn us down uh, well it's a classic so, it's a it's a classic what was it like during the sessions do you feel like you guys had a sense that this was really uh, something special it. It just felt great to me yeah. as we did it. I mean, we were meticulous about it, very meticulous, because like in the uh, rehearsing we, and we, and learning of the songs, you mean? Yeah, we were yeah we were ready to go when we got there. We weren't working this stuff up in the studio.
No, it, it, it was made to go together. I mean, there's a lot, there's quite a few songs where Edgar and I definitely, had, we, we would organize every, try to every, every, every downbeat, every upbeat as to where we think they were going to go. Um, yeah. And, and because, because we wanted it to, to feel kind of like, uh, well, from the lack of a better term on my part, like bluegrass chamber music or something, you know, where, where each part, uh, because it seemed like there was a couple of tunes too where nobody really does hit on the same beat much. So, I mean, we just tried different ways of playing our instruments and, uh, and that was the good part about the co-writes of, of bringing in the different influences and the same, you know, the way Jerry writes, not, not at all the way, you know, Edgar would. And you have Edgar's classical sense of starkness, mm-hmm. uh, of, of when it's really okay for this, these real stark sounds just to stand. You don't have sure. to fill up everything. Don't have to fill up everything. And that's yeah. where Edgar really can really shine. Yeah, that's cool. I, I feel like each of you guys brings a very distinct voice and a very distinct concept about how the music should sound to that record, and that's why it's really stood the test of time. And I, in some way, it's kind of you know you mentioned Telluride. In some way, that record was the advent of kind of this the core of the tell you you know what's going on to become the telluride house band on this episode i think we'll be airing after telluride this year but it's the 50th year of telluride bluegrass and we've we've got the king of telluride on the line right here so i i I have to ask what has that festival meant to you over the years well i mean if we were if we were even looking around this you know looking around our house uh I mean, te- for me, uh, everything. I mean, it, yeah. it, I've, I've, I've literally grown up going there w- once a year, and uh, uh, I now know God how young I was when we first went. And but it, um, I mean, I don't take it for granted because figuratively, it, it's given me a place to go, um, an audience to play to. Um, but more than that, a lot of uh, personal and musical relationships have been formed yeah. there. People I met there that I might not have met otherwise, and and uh, maybe maybe we didn't jam together then, but it could have led to something else later, or or just it, you know the music that I've that I've gotten to hear. You know, the, tonight I heard Paco De Lucio with his dancers and. Holy mackerel, you know, I mean, there's just been some amazing things. Um, but, I mean, it, it, it means everything to Lynn and me. I mean, and, um, you know, right down to, the, like, you know, we have, we have quite a collection of Willie Matthews' beautiful uh, uh, posters from Telluride. So, mm-hmm. it's, uh, but, but, I mean, it, it, it's, it it uh, it's it's amazing to me. I mean, it, that any festival can has gone on that long. So credit, you know, Craig and Steve and, and Planet Bluegrass and keep. I mean, that what an amazing it is. feat to keep it any, is. to any fest any festival at all going. You know, yeah. much less one in and you know in the old Box Canyon there. And I know it's it's not an easy, easy place to get to. It's not an easy place to get to, and it's sort of like. It's a funny thing with the fans, you you sort of see, you know, people who go to Telluride, they go every year. 
you know, and it's a tough nut to crack. It's a tough ticket to get. But if for the people who are in, it's like you cannot miss this. And I think, you know, we feel so lucky, the string dusters who have been brought into that family. And like you say, it's just this reunion of all your people and people you've met at Telluride and all the other bands. And it's it's just such a special thing. And we can't wait to be there yeah. this summer. It's going to be great. There's some, there's some years, you know, obviously we know more people than others. But I mean, when we when, it, when we all got started, we, the Newgrass Revival, were the first band that was hired uh, not from Colorado. So the first year they had it, it was locals. Uh, they were all either Aspen or around Telluride. And the, 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 the original band who were the promoters, the Fall Creek Band, Cooster McAllister was the banjo picker and the band Fred Shellman guitar and John Herndon guitar. And uh, so, they, you know, they, they started because they wanted some of their favorite bands to play there. So they heard the Newgrass Boys at Winfield in 74. And then they hired us in 75 to come out. Mm. And... Uh, you know, we we almost didn't make it. Uh, Court, Courtney didn't want to go just for one job all the way to Colorado, so we actually broke up for a couple of days, but we got back together and went <laughs> on to Telluride. We had the time of our life. We met some of our best friends for life. Uh, and, um, and then so, um, you know, we in turn... You know, now, now you know, we, we got, we told Peter, Peter Rowan about it. We told Brian Bowers about it and, and Stevie. Oh, so you guys kind of came back and spread the word. You guys kind of spread the word about this place you'd been. Okay. We've, we've been to the mountain. Okay. We've been very cool. to the mountain. And, uh, and so, but, and also, well, I mean, we, I mean, I'm not going to take like only cause we said it, but I mean, you know, our manager was and booking agent was Keith Case. Well, he was Hartford's too. So he told, you know, John, well, the Newgrass boys went there and had the time of their life, you know, if you want to go. And yeah. Doc and Merle, you know, heard about it from us. They definitely did hear about it from us. And it, But it's, as you know, and, and it's a challenge to play there. As, as one ages, I now know, it can be a challenge. The altitude is its okay. own kind of thing. It you know depending on the song you 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 in 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 hillbilly terms you really need to leave a song with a swallow in place because boy <laughs> it's hard to catch a breath um, and sometimes uh, that uh, you're and you know your instruments sound different up there yep. at that altitude they sound thinner all I mean all you know it affects banjos it's, it's not it's not just wood it affects everything. Um, uh, uh, strings go dead quicker. Uh, hard to catch your breath. Uh, uh, the can't slide on your strings as well. It's just dust, and that's and that's if it has rained that day. So, yeah, right. You know, and it might be ninety in the day and forty at night. And uh, welcome to tell you, Rod. Could but be snowing. It is. It, it has been for Could us. Could be snowing. Yes, I think I we've. All, I bet everybody, almost everybody's had a Telluride snowing experience, uh, or it's dang near cold enough to. So it's its own challenge, but it's its own reward too. It's it's, it's you know it's uh, it. I still get kind of you know a certain feeling you know when we first hit town again. You yeah, know, it's, it's kind of hard to believe we made it. Well, one of the things that we love about it is that the house band has become this staple you know and you guys so sam jerry douglas on dobro Stuart duncan 
Edgar, and then of course, Bela and Brian Sutton, who have both been guests here on the podcast, get together for a set of music that, and it's evolved over the years now. I love how you guys are really just have fun with it. And it can be, you know, the craziest, most technical tunes to the most jovial stuff. And now, like, for example, we get some Bela Fleck lead vocals happening in recent years. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and which sounds great. It all sounds great. And it's just, it's cool for us because of the, the, the inspiration that you guys have been. And we get a chance to see you guys every year. And it's, it's, uh, it's really, really cool. And I'm excited for the summer. So I want to ask you really quick before we wrap up here, this has been so great and, and so fun to hear all these stories and sort of how this whole thing unfolded. But I did want to pick your brain a little bit just about kind of performance mindset and the things that you've honed in on over your career that you feel like have helped make you a better performer. Because I know that one impression that we, our generation, have of you, and this honestly came from, you know, when you came to do the Bluegrass Generals with us in, in Denver, I remember uh, we, were, we were reminiscing after the fact about how, you know, it's 2 p.m. and you're rehearsing in a dark green room and it's like, man, you're giving the music everything. And it feels like there's a real commitment to the music. I heard the same thing from Bela when he was a guest here and, and just, just sort of giving it everything to the music and, you know, as much as you possibly can. And that's really inspirational. But I, I wanted to hear from you. Just what are some thoughts about things that help you get in the zone, things you've worked on over the course of your career that have made you a better performer? Um, well, I, you know, I, I, I tend to, uh, and I can't, you can't always follow any one rule for starters, but uh, I, uh, I tend to uh, uh, really kind of a, a appreciate what I'm, where I'm getting to be. Uh, uh, Health-wise, I've had this, this this the rug pulled out from under me a few times, and all of a sudden you go, oh, what if I don't get to do this anymore? Well, so but I've always had a deep appreciation for getting to do it. I grew up on a farm. I know what real work is, and I'm I'm not doing it. <laughs> that being said, uh, I I think part of it I come from an old-time kind of. When I grew up, you know, playing like in square dance bands and be, even being the youngest kid in the bluegrass band, you know, being the kid fiddler and everybody else would be, you know, an adult. And um, you basically, you know, you shut the hell up, you stand there with a smile on your face and you never, you try to never let the audience know anything's wrong, you know. And the last thing, the last thing in the world when you are in the audience is to hear some <laughs> singer or player bitching about how cold their fingers are or how tough it is to breathe and think the hell you ride. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> the last thing, I mean, shut up and enjoy playing and singing because, you know, it is a, a privilege to get to play music. I mean, it's, it's one we've worked for. It's yeah. what we've worked for, you know, it's, it's the reward, but it, it, you know, it's, you're not, you're, and, and my, and my mom said it, you know, that this is coming from a mother from the, you know, that grew, <laughs> grew up on the farm. Uh, you're not special just cause you know how to play an instrument. <laughs> so, you know, keep that in mind. Um, but 
but really, I mean, it, it really does come back to uh, old old time show business of a, of of a, I've grown up with it. That you know, getting to play music on stage—that is the positive part of the day. That is your good part, and yeah. um, and of course, everything can't always be wonderful, but you can give it a good college try. And uh, um, but uh, I if uh, if I go to a baseball game or a movie or or a or a musical event. Um, if I think about other things I should be doing, I'm not entertained enough. So, you know, part, I mean, so I, I realized that we're entertaining through our music also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if, if we can keep people, if we can keep people's attention just by playing music, uh, you know, and then, and, you know, we, we don't, we don't have dance routines. Sure. It's fun to jump around a little bit, but not really choreographed. So, you know, if we can keep their attention by playing music, then we've done our jobs. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a little intention and effort to stay with that gratitude. Like sometimes you just get a little in your own way and you get too much thinking about how you're doing or how you're doing that night or how that last solo was. And if you can just kind of zoom out big picture and be grateful for where you're at and what you're able to do, that can really help get you in the zone. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's hard, you know, it's sometimes hard to keep that in perspective right. when you're, you're, you're standing on stage and, and you, and you're, because, you know, you, you, let's face it, you don't always play to your own satisfaction as, much, as well as you wanted to execute something, and, you know, and, uh, but. Uh, you got to let it go. You got to let it go because guess what? You got some more stuff. You got some more notes you better try to play. You better forget <laughs> about those. But uh, I was, I uh, uh, a, a live Emmy Lou Harris record came out a couple of years ago from now, you know, well over 25 years ago when we did it. And I just barely, I kind of had a memory that night of, I, I knew it was being taped, but I, nothing ever was more was said about it. Then all of a sudden they find the tapes and I listened to it. And I remembered that night not being real happy with my playing. And then when now 20, over 25 years later, you're listening to a tape of it going, Wow, I wish I could mess up like that now. <laughs> so that's awesome. You know, kind of yeah. keep it keep it in perspective. You that's know? right. That's right. Wow, it, it's not. It, it's it's just music. Have fun with it, and just you know, if we miss it today, we'll try again tomorrow. Wise words and a great great spot, I think, to wrap it up here with one of the best to ever do it, Sam Bush, my man. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Thanks, Sam. All right, that's a wrap on episode 36 of the podcast. Too cool to be hanging out with Sam Bush today. Oh, just one of the all-time legends, Sam. We thank you, and I thank all of you for tuning in to Inside the Musician's Brain. We are brought to you by Osiris Media, Americana Vibes, and Deering Banjos, your source for everything banjo. If you would please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Let the world know what we got going on over here and let them know that you dig it. It helps a ton. And I got to say, we got some very, very exciting guests coming up for the end of this season. I'm not even sure who's up next. I'm going to figure that out here in the coming days. I got to get my bags packed and get out the door for String Dusters Tour. But I'll catch you all again right here in two weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain.
Osiris. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.